Well, growing up in Santa Cruz, California, there was one particular symbol that really dominated my surroundings. And it wasn't a cross. It wasn't the American flag. It wasn't the sort of popular yin-yang, you know, that Chinese symbol. It was, in Santa Cruz, California, the peace sign. Peace signs to Santa Cruz, that was like the Razorback to Fayetteville. They were everywhere. They flew in front yards. They were spray-painted happily on Volkswagen buses. You had Rasta peace sign t-shirts, you know, with the with the green and the yellow and the red. You had peace flower stickers that would always be sort of sticked on the back or stuck on the back of, of stop signs. It was the universal symbol of my own childhood. So you can just picture the iconic image of John Lennon sort of out here, give peace a chance, and you've got an idea. But even if the peace sign, that may not have been sort of the ubiquitous symbol of your own childhood, but peace is something I trust we all long for, something we all pray for, Especially on a memorial day like this one, we spend a moment to honor the fallen because, well, peace evades us. Peace so often eludes us. So summits with North Korea are canceled, right? The war in Afghanistan grinds on. Our nation's longest ever, over a trillion dollars, four times longer than our World War II. Right, but it's not just the wars we fight on the battlefield. It's the, the war increasingly that are being fought in classrooms, whether you're talking Texas or Florida with rising gun violence. It's the, the wars over abortion rights, wars over religious liberty, over, over free speech on college campuses. Everywhere we look, it seems there's a battlefield. Right, in our homes, even in our churches. You know, I prayed just a minute ago for the Southern Baptist Convention because they've got a battle of sorts brewing as the, as the convention plans to meet in just two weeks. You know, tensions, I don't think, in the convention have really run this high since the, the conversations and debates over inerrancy 40 years ago. Which just begs the question, is peace possible? Is peace possible? And if so, where do we go for it? Where do we look? Do we look to the UN? Right, how can it be secured? Are our best tools merely sort of the fragile art of diplomacy? You know, universal education, better family counseling, is that how peace can be secured? And will it last? If we even can secure it, will it endure? Well, friends, those are the kind of questions we're going to be thinking about this morning. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. You can find our passage in chapter 2 on page 976. If you're using one of the, the Bibles in the seatbacks before you, page 976. And if you're just joining us, we've really been working through this New Testament letter, this epistle of Paul, for about the past two months. And we're about to take a three-week break, and we're going to get some time in the Psalms over the next three weeks. And then, Lord willing, we're going to come back to Ephesians, and we're going to try to finish it by the end of the summer. But, as you recall, as we started the letter, Ephesians written by Paul, it's written to a church he helped both to plant and to pastor and it's there in Ephesus, and he wrote this letter to that church, to some of the surrounding churches in Ephesus. And the issue in part is that as Christianity has grown, so has its detractors. So Acts 19 recounts a, a growing chorus of angry voices, even riots in Ephesus spilling out into the streets over these Christians. And amidst this rising tide of persecution, Paul writes at first just to remind them, hey, you're blessed. I know, what, I know the heat you feel outside of you, but but you are blessed. 
The Father's elected you, right? The Son has redeemed you. The, the Spirit has sealed and secured you. And as he says, nobody can take that away from you. That is your inheritance. That's what you have in Christ. But in order for them to fully appreciate all that God has done, what does he do? Well, he, he needs to remind them in chapter 2 of what they've been rescued from. And so he opens chapter 2 with this withering assessment of our own spiritual condition in 2, 1 to 3. It's then followed by this glorious proclamation of divine compassion. We thought about that last week, 2, 4 to 10. So what they are not by nature, that's what God makes them by grace. And yet, sadly... Despite all that, the battles still rage on. So one of the greatest battle lines within the early church was the relationship within the church between Jews and Gentiles. So Jews had historically looked at Gentiles as sort of uncouth dogs. One Jewish writer wrote confidently asserting that Gentiles were created by God merely to be fuel for the fires of hell. Now, I'm guessing if someone were to say that to you, you wouldn't be gathering on the fire singing Kumbaya. You wouldn't want to be gathering in communion with them. That was just some of the tension that existed between the two groups, and they ran high, and, and Jewish Christians were often seeking to impose upon Gentile Christians circumcision and dietary laws. And this became such a contentious issue, if you know the book of Acts, that Acts 15 deals, like the first great ecclesiastical council in Acts 15 that we find deals with this issue of Jewish and Gentile relations in the church. A reminder even within the body of Christ, that peace can be elusive. And so we come to our text in Ephesians 2, 11 to 12. Let's read. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, friends, here we've actually arrived at one of the central passages of Ephesians. For thus far, Paul has largely dealt with their plight and God's sort of gracious provision. He's dealt with that in, in personal terms. But now he's going to shift 
And he speaks of how this grace of God, it's communal. It saves us as individuals, yes, but saves us into a body, and and that body should be distinct. It's a new community revolving around him, and the unity of this new community is really what he sets forth in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and it's a theme he's going to come back to in Ephesians 4 later in the book. And I think if we're just going to, if we're going to break our passage down, we really see three movements, three movements in these verses, and those movements are just going to serve as our outline this morning. So in verses 11 to 12, Paul just describes very clearly sort of what we were, Gentiles, what we were, verses 11 to 12, then 13 to 18, what Jesus has done, and then 19 to 22, what we've become. So that's the three movements. So what we were, verses 11 to 12, and if you want to summarize that in a word, it's alienation. What we were, alienation. 13 to 18, what Jesus has done, that's reconciliation. And then what we've become, 19 to 22, new creation. Okay, I said three words, it's four words, but you get, what I, you get my point. Alienation to reconciliation to new creation. That's the movement. It's not the most original outline. I get it. My creative juices weren't exactly flowing this week. But though not artful exactly, I think it's faithful. just reflects the movement of the text. Uh, if you know much about music, Mozart tended to write his symphonies in three parts, in three movements, where you'd have this tension build, and it would give way to this fast, glorious conclusion. And if you like that idea, I just think this is a Pauline symphony. A Pauline symphony in three movements. All right. First movement, what we were. This is verse 11 and 12, and that, that word is alienation. Alienation. Now, if you've been reading Ephesians really closely, you might have been struck by how he opens in 2.11 because he gives them this command to remember. This command to remember. And it's Paul's first imperative. We're well into chapter 2. We haven't seen one yet. It's the first one we've seen, and we're not going to see another one until chapter 4. Essentially, the first three chapters of Ephesians are what you could think of as imperative-free zones. No imperatives in the first three chapters, with this exception. And friends, that's not coincidental. I don't think that's by accident. That's actually how the gospel works. The imperatives that are going to come in chapter 4, that we walk humbly, that we live patiently with one another, that we love eagerly, right? those always follow the indicatives, those descriptions of what God has already done. You can think of that as the grammar of the gospel, and you don't want to get that grammar wrong. God acts first, indicative, we respond to that gracious action, and the comparatives then follow. But what are they called in particular to remember? Well, in verses 11 and 12, it's not exactly the stuff you put on a Hallmark card. He notes first they were Gentiles in the flesh, those called the uncircumcision by those who considered themselves the circumcision. Now, I'm going to trust you know something of what circumcision is and explain, or at least relieve me of the awkwardness of explaining it now. If you're not sure, feel free to come. You can ask me afterwards. I'll happily tell you. Um, But circumcision was like the definitive mark of Judaism. It's what separated them. It's what cut them off, quite literally, from the nations around them. So when they called someone the uncircumcision or the uncircumcised, that wasn't a compliment. Jews didn't offer that in appreciation. That was really an ethnic slur that Jews would sling at Gentiles. Now Israel was called to be a light to the nations, but sadly they they often twisted that gift and they turned it into a privilege. 
They turned God's favor toward them into a kind of favoritism that led them to despise all of those who were not like them. And friends, I mention that only because I think if we're not careful, we're liable to the same risks. We can fall prey to the same things. Because we can rejoice, right? We can wax eloquently at the fact that we've been saved by grace. By grace alone, that's it. But then some time passes, and then we can begin to believe that there was something about us, something that set us apart, something in us that gathered God's attention. We secretly begin to believe that we're different, we're distinct, we're unique, we even deserved it. Which is probably why Paul notes there at the end of verse 11 that this circumcision of the Jews was made in the flesh by hands. Now, we hear that expression, made by hand, and we think, oh, maybe it's like a nice purse or a pair of shoes. It's a luxury item. It was made by hand. But that's not how the Old Testament would understand that expression. That expression, made by hand, is actually how the Old Testament speaks of pagan idols. Those things made by hands. Paul, in that little expression, he's flipping it back on any within the congregation that would be Jewish and would be tending to take pride in their Jewishness. He's saying that that circumcision made by human hands, well, that they have turned itself into this grotesque kind of pagan idol. And far from what that's actually, that circumcision is not uniting them to God, it's in fact cutting them off from him. Again, literally and spiritually in this case. And what they're really to remember, though, that it comes crashing down in the rest of verse 11 and into 12, like sort of one verbal tsunami after another, because he says they were separated from Christ. And if we think of all the blessings in 1, 3 to 14, the blessing of, of election and of adoption and of redemption and of glorification, all these things, all those blessings came only for those who were in Christ. So to come now and to read that they were separated from Christ, oh, that's tragic. They don't participate in those blessings. But more than that, we read they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He's saying, in other words, they have no citizenship among God's people. They were strangers to the covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. So if 2, 1 to 3 presented our own spiritual helplessness as those who are dead in sin, unable to help ourselves, Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 present our spiritual hopelessness. Because Paul's saying, yet you Gentiles were Christless, stateless, friendless, godless, and it doesn't get more hopeless. And that was their position. And when Paul says they're without God, that's actually that word is where we get our word atheist. But that doesn't mean that, that these Gentiles mocked any notion of God. It didn't mean they... they they made fun of the supernatural. Not at all. Actually, these Gentiles were very religious people prior to their conversion. Or there are temples, there are shrines all over Ephesus. The largest building in the Greek world was the temple of Artemis to Diana. They all would have known that very well. They were a very religious people. He's just saying that they had no true knowledge of God. They had no personal relationship with this God. In that sense, they were without God. Now, to say that they were without God, that would have been as offensive to the ears of Paul's hearers as it would be offensive to the ears of many of ours. For today, what matters, right? What matters is not so much what you believe today. It simply matters that you believe. 
And if that belief serves you well, if that belief works for you, you could be a Wiccan, you could be a Christian, whatever it is, but if it works, great. All the more power to you. That's largely how our culture communicates. And that attitude, in fact, was very similar in Paul's day. The world in which Paul preached, much like our own, it didn't make any appeal to moral absolutes, right? Truth in the ancient world was was something more sensed than it was known. It was what you sort of intuit and what you imagine, what you experience. Truth was what you dream. It was more internal, more subjective than external and objective, Truth was something, again, to be experienced and felt, not something to be discovered and understood. Which is why when Christianity came onto the scene, claiming objective truths grounded in historical realities of a risen Christ, it was very new to the ears of those who heard it. And what Paul's saying is that it doesn't matter your religious opinions, whether you like them or not, or whether that spiritual opinion makes you feel good or not, the question is, is it true? Is it true? Vague spirituality, Paul's saying, that's not going to do. That puts you, in fact, without God. Because spirituality, even religious piety, without Christ, does nothing to erase our hostility with God. Spirituality even a kind of religious piety, a kind of moral piety, if that is apart from Jesus, it does nothing to erase our own hostility with God. And that's the state that everyone finds themselves in apart from Jesus, without hope, without God, alienated. And once again, Paul has just given us another crushing condemnation of all of our conditions apart from Christ. Done it just as he did back in 2, 1 to 3. And yet, once again, just like 2.3 to 2.4, we've got this glorious turn in what they were, verse 11, at one time, formerly. Verse 13, but now, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you, you Gentiles, you who were once far off, have been brought near. You hear the very similarities in 2.3 to 2.4. We see it here in 2.12 to 2.4. 213, this, this but now, but God, but, but God and Jesus in this case. And that you is emphatic. He's saying, you Gentiles, you were Christless and hopeless and stateless and the rest. You were, you were brought near, sort of exclamation point. You can think of 213 as really sort of the summary sentence in the whole passage. Because 14 to 18 is going to be the support for that statement. And then 19 to 22 is sort of the so what. right? What, what, what do we glean and where do we go with it? And... It's the the opening note, really, verse 13, to the second movement. If we're going to think of this as a Pauline symphony, the second movement is what Jesus has done. That's reconciliation. The second movement, what Jesus has done, reconciliation. That's verses 13 to 18. Now, in saying they've been brought near to God, that was a significant exclamation. Because being brought near to God was something that Israel alone uniquely enjoyed. Deuteronomy 4, 7, in fact, We read, what other great nation has a God so near to them like the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Nearness, this idea of nearness, it implies intimacy. This nearness implies relationship. It implies fellowship. All things these Gentiles lacked. 
And yet the glorious truth right here is this, this God, he wouldn't keep his distance. He wouldn't stand upon his dignity. He wouldn't insist upon some complicated ritual or some protocol. No, he comes to us. He draws near to us in Christ. He doesn't say that the Gentiles were seeking God. We noted back in 2, 1 to 3, there are no true seekers. Because in our sin, we're like criminals on the run. We are not seeking God, which is why God has to draw near to us. It's why he has to come to us. And that's exactly what he has done in Christ. You know, we have a, a puppy of sorts, about eight months now. But this puppy loves to chew on my rugs. And it's tested my sanctification in many, many ways. Because some of them are old and they're from family and so I appreciate them. But at any rate, when she realizes I've discovered the rug, she bolts as quickly as she can into her crate and she cowers and she hides. She's on the run. She knows. Well, friends, it's like that with us and God. In our guilt, we don't naturally want to draw near to this God if we know him as he is. And like Adam and Eve, ever since our first sins, ever since our first parents sinned in the garden, we've been running, we've been hiding from God. And how has God drawn near? He says right there, verse 13, through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ. You know, the blood is the language of sacrifice. And it's the sacrifice that secures our peace. And it's that sacrifice that works to reconcile us to God. And verses really 14 to 18 support and explain how Christ takes us from that position of being alienated and now makes us reconciled in Christ. Now when we think of reconciliation and this word peace, which is going to dominate these next four verses, we're going to see it I think four or so times, we think of peace, we think cessation of hostilities. Right? We think of no more war. But in the Bible, peace has a much broader meaning. It's a much more holistic term. It, it doesn't just mean sort of laying down one's arms, but it means harmony. It means wholeness. It means completion. And peace would have been a notion very familiar to Paul's readers. So Paul's readers there in Ephesus during the Roman Empire, this is sort of the height of the, the Pax Romana, right? Roman peace, claiming to have secured peace across the Mediterranean world. And yet, if you lived there in Ephesus, most of whom would not have been citizens, if you were a Jew in Ephesus, that peace came at the edge of a sword. It was a thinly veiled peace, if at all. And so for them to hear that peace is found in Christ, is secured in Christ, that would have gathered their attention. And Paul's saying, if you want to know where to go, where, where you look for peace, he's saying, don't look to Rome, don't look to Caesar, don't look to any government or nation or leader. He's saying, look to Christ, verse 14, he himself. Just to underscore it, Christ himself. Let there be no question, Christ himself is our peace. And he is that in two distinct ways. He is in the sense that he brings peace among men. Peace among men. Now, We've noted this sort of great division between Jew and Gentile back in, in, uh, in which verse 14, that, that divide, verse 14, is what Christ bridges, we read. Christ making both one. Christ breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is that wall that Paul's referring to? You know, at the temple in Jerusalem, there was a, a barricade of sorts that separated the outer court of the Gentiles 
with really the inner court of the Jews. And there was a Jewish historian, Josephus, that noted that there were signs all along sort of the barrier between the outer court of the Gentiles and the inner court. And that sign didn't say, you know, trespassers will be prosecuted. That sign effectively said trespassers will be executed. The sign was very clear. Gentile, you cross this line. You jump over that barrier, that fence, that wall, and your blood is on your own head. I don't remember the exact quote, but that's very close to what it was. And that wall very visibly marked the great separation between Jew and Gentile. It stood as a prominent reminder of the great divide that existed between the two people. And yet Christ, we read, he tore that wall down. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And we read that word abolished and we're surprised because we're thinking, wait, I, I believe I remember Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Well, I think there in Matthew 5, if that threw you at all this week, there in Matthew 5, I think Christ is largely referring to the moral law of God. Because he goes on immediately after that and he refers to, to murder and to lust and to divorce and to adultery and to lying. And of these things, Jesus never said, I've abolished all of that. You can lie all you want without consequence. You can sleep with whomever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter. No, that's not at all what Christ said. Well, that's because that moral law reflects God's own character. And that character doesn't change. It's an enduring law. So, so Christ didn't abolish that. He fulfilled that and supported it. He reinforced it. I think here in, in Ephesians 2, I think he's talking more the, the ceremonial aspects of the law. Those things he says that are expressed in ordinances or rules and regulations, as other translations will say. Something there of, of the sacrifices, of circumcision, of feasts and dietary regulations, of ritual cleanliness. Paul's saying all of those ceremonial aspects have been abolished or nullified because Christ fulfilled them. Because he fulfilled them. You know, Aaron and I were at Theater Squared on Friday night seeing uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and we saw a number of you there. It was almost like a little UBC reunion of sorts. But at any rate, we're, we're there, and they have a model of the new facility they're building across the street. And you look across the street right down, and you can see it. But of course, in order to sort of erect it, and in preparation for the, the, the building, what do you first have to do? You've got to build a scaffolding. And that scaffolding is the structure by which you sort of create the new building. And it's often elaborate scaffolding like you see downtown. And I think you can think of the ceremonial law a bit like scaffolding. And Paul's point is that now that Christ has come in his own life and by his death, he has fulfilled all the types and shadows of the Old Testament and of that sacrificial system. And now that he has come as the true temple, that scaffolding can be torn down, right? The building is complete. The scaffolding was only meant to be temporary, meant to prepare us for what was to come. And that's how the sort of ceremonial aspects of the law worked. And so Paul's saying in Christ's death, now that scaffolding has been torn down, that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed. Now, at the time Paul's writing this, that wall still stood. But spiritually speaking, Paul is saying that all that happens at that temple, all the ceremonial aspects of the law, he's saying they're antiquated, they're out of date, they're obsolete. It was as if at the cross, Jesus erected a huge sign out front of the temple that said, closed for business. Closed 
for business. There are no longer any need for sacrifices because his was that perfect and final sacrifice. And then just to make clear that Christ's work was sufficient, it was in AD 70 that Roman legions came and they destroyed that temple just to make clear that they didn't need it anymore because Christ was that temple, that perfect sacrifice. And in this way, he makes one new man, verse 15, out of two. Which means, if you reflect on that, making one new man out of two Jesus didn't expect Gentiles to become Jews. Nor did he expect Jews now to become Gentiles. But rather both Jew and Gentile together, they become something new. A new corporate entity, a new humanity that is united in Christ. Which means, I think my Christian friends, when we talk to people about the gospel, we're not out to finally convert them to our own cultural values. Sometimes when we share the gospel, those things can get intertwined. But that's not out, what we're finally out to do. It's not to win people over to our cultural values. We're not trying to just make Christian Americans. We're not trying to win people over to a political party or to a particular political philosophy or to, to democracy or capitalism or any of those things. As much as we might appreciate those things, that's not finally what we're after. No, that's because our concern is that this new humanity as Christ has created, transcends all those earthly distinctions. In here, in a gathering like this, all of those distinctions are meant to be deeply secondary. Christ being primary. But this same death, Paul's saying that, that Christ has, by this death, where he's obliterated this hostility between Jew and Gentile, he also doesn't want us to miss what he taught earlier, namely that it also obliterates that hostility that exists between us and God. So horizontal hostility, the cross deals with that. This vertical hostility, the cross also deals with that. You know, so if you've come here this morning and, and you wouldn't think of yourself as, as a Christian, you may think coming in that your greatest hostility is the hostility you have between yourself and a friend or between yourself and a spouse. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a child. You may think that's where your greatest hostility lies. There's been some falling out. But Paul's reminding us, even right here, what he taught us back in 2, 1 to 3. And that is the greatest hostility any of us face. It's not between ourselves and another person. It's not between ourselves and our employer. It's not between ourselves and our nation. It's the hostility that we have created between ourselves and God in our sins. That's the greatest hostility. And this, Paul says, is the hostility that Christ kills through the cross. Because it's there on the cross as Christ hangs for all those who would turn away from their sin and they would look to him. Jesus willingly took upon himself there on the cross their sins. All that enmity that we had sort of built up between ourselves and God, that is what Jesus bore for us. That's why he was killed for us. He on the cross bearing the wrath of God for us so that we wouldn't have to. That's what the cross is all about. It's not Jesus, a helpless victim. 
It's not Jesus modeling a life of self-sacrifice. The cross is about Jesus becoming that final sacrifice, bearing God's wrath so that, verse 18, we all might have access to one spirit through the Father. Friend, in our sin, we want to run from God. Right? Like my puppy, we want to run. We want to go cower in our own crates, in our own holes. That's how we respond to this holy God. But we don't have to cower anymore. That's what Paul's saying. We don't have to tiptoe around God. We don't have to fear like we might disturb him or, or we might provoke him. We don't have to approach him timidly, but we can approach him boldly. We can approach him not fearfully and not reluctantly, but we can come because Christ, Paul says, has killed the hostility. The one who was slayed has slayed that hostility in his death. That's the glorious thing about the cross. And therefore, what do we have? We have an all-access pass to the Father, an all-access pass. Access to the one who turns the hearts of kings wherever he wills. Access to the one who scattered stars across the sky, who's carved canyons into the earth, who's painted valleys. This God, we have access to this one. Oh, friend, you have access to this God. Have you come to this God through Christ? We can't come any other way. Paul is so clear. For he himself, Christ, is our peace. There is no other peace. There is no other way to peace but then through Christ. Have you come through Christ? Well, Paul leaves us there as he sort of takes us into our third and final movement. And this is, we've thought about sort of the, what we were in alienation and what, what God has done, reconciliation. But now we think about what we've become, this new creation for all those who've trusted in Christ. That's that third and final movement, what we've become, this new creation. Because those who have trusted in this Prince of Peace, Paul says, yes, he is your peace and he is more than that. And we, he gives us these three images to sort of highlight what this new people have become. And he says, verse 19, he says, first, you're no longer aliens, but he says, you're, you're fellow citizens. You know, citizenship is precious. We know that. We hear the fights about it today in the news. But, you know, in Paul's day, it's estimated less than one half of one percent would have been genuine citizens the vast majority wouldn't have had the protections of citizenship. And if you've traveled ever overseas, you know the power of pulling out that U.S. passport. You know, over 100 countries, I think, just cooperate with us. We don't need visas when we go there. I know when I pulled out my passport in some countries where I was slightly concerned, they see that U.S. passport, and they know the might and the power of the U.S. government behind it, and they quickly usher me through. And I'm very grateful for that passport. Paul's saying, hey, you're new citizens. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You have a new passport. You yourself, God has given you a new passport. But it's not sort of the might and the strength of the U.S. government behind it. It's the might and the strength of Almighty God that stands behind that passport. But it's not just a new passport. He says, he uses the second image of they're no longer orphans, but they're members of God's household. They're members of his household. In other words, he's saying, not only you've got a new passport, you've got a new birth certificate. You have that as well. You've been adopted into the family of God. You know, in Roman culture, because so many weren't citizens, your protection came by being brought into a family where there was a father citizen there. And that father citizen would provide protection and refuge and, and a sense of belonging. 
And Paul's saying, that's what you enjoy in Christ. Birth certificates that grant you now refuge and protection, not on the basis of some earthly father who will die or could turn on you, but on the basis of a heavenly father who will never deny you. But they're not just giving you passports and new birth certificates. He uses this third image of no longer being separated from God, but verse 22, being built into a dwelling place for God. You know, they're given a new identity, even a new identity. And it's this third image that he sort of builds upon. It's this identity, this identity founded upon, as he says, the apostles and the prophets. And you know what unites these two groups of apostles and prophets? It's their function. You know, apostles and prophets were teachers. What united them was instruction, which is, on, which is Paul's way of saying this new creation community that is being built in Christ, the local expression of Christ in that local church is founded upon what? It's founded upon the teaching of the scriptures. And friend, that's why you should be laying a foundation of the scriptures in your own life. It's why that, those scriptures are the foundation of this church. It's why you're still listening to me even right now when we have mic issues. You're hearing me talk about the scriptures because that's our foundation. It's not the winsome personality of any one preacher. It's the wisdom of this word and the God behind it. That is our foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, as he says. And the cornerstone being Christ, that means it's, it's not our job to add to it, to modify it, to subtract it. We can't say stuff like, I'm fine with Jesus, but you know, that Paul guy, I could do without him. Or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read my New Testament, but that Old Testament, I don't really have a lot of, a lot of time for that God. You know, all the Old Testament scriptures, they point to Christ. Jesus is saying, if you want to receive me, you have to receive him who faithfully preaches me. And Paul would be preaching to them from those Old Testament scriptures and the New. That is our foundation as a church. That's your foundation as a believer. But, you know, if we step back, what Paul's doing in these wonderful images here in 219 to 22 is he's saying, yeah, you are a new creation community. You are where the kingdom of God rules. You are the family that he loves, the temple in which he dwells, right? New passports, new birth certificates, a new identity. That is God's work in you. And friends, that's a glorious image. Is it true of us? Is it true of us? Does that image represent us? Because if Christian history teaches us anything, it's that if we're not careful, we see this in Israel's own history, if we're not careful, a kind of racism or nationalism or tribalism or sexism can take root in our own gatherings. You know, if you've been watching the news at all, the evangelical church here in the U.S. Is, has been suffering a bit from its own sort of Me Too movement. It's clearly come home to roost in our own convention, which is what, what part of the part of some of the battles are about right now. And I think we're being forced to ask, do we suffer? Do we suffer at least in some corners of evangelicalism from a kind of sexism that would send abused women back to their abusers? You know, when a, when a male seminary student commits sexual assault against a female, sex, a female seminary student and the female is put on probation, but from all accounts it seems... Nothing happens to the man. What message does that send? 
Does that send a message to women that they are protected, that they can find refuge in God's household? As Paul meant them to know, as Jesus means them to know. You know, that's perhaps out there, but what about here? What about our own body? Could there be a, a kind of sexism even at work in us at UBC? If we feel uncomfortable, maybe, with women who serve as ushers, who read from the pulpit, who would pray publicly even from the pulpit on our services? And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is if the Bible clearly opens up such service to them, and you can think about that even in texts like 1 Corinthians 11, and if the Bible opens up that service and we prevent them from such service or we look sideways at them, are we not also guilty of a form of sexism? Are we not also erecting barriers that Christ has torn down? Are we not guilty of standing on a foundation other than the apostles and prophets? You know, what about racial diversity? You can look around. We're a very white congregation. I recognize Fayetteville is also a very white city. I am well aware of that. But we should be asking ourselves, as your elders are asking themselves as we meet this summer, are there things that we do, even unconsciously, that serve to erect racial barriers in our own gatherings? You know, we should be a place where, where stones from different ethnic quarries can be brought together and built into a spiritual home and the multifaceted, multi-ethnic character of that building uniquely displays God's glory. That's what we should be desiring. That's what we should long for. Are we doing things to perhaps prevent that? You know, if you're, if you're not white and you come here, I would love to hear from you. If there are any things, you're like, I just, as someone who doesn't share sort of majority culture experience, this is my experience here. Your elders, if you're a member here, even if you're not, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know how we can think better about this. Or take even church planning. You know, I've been reading here in, in our own state, the fastest growing churches in Arkansas are cowboy churches. Which, you know, coming from D.C., I just, I'm still trying to get my head around exactly what that means. They're cowboy churches. But here, I think Paul would have a stop and ask, if the gospel is to display our unity across our own racial and cultural identities, why would we create churches on the basis of those cultural identities? Why would we do that? If Christ creates one new man out of two, why would we create churches based on the old man? How is that not antithetical to exactly what Paul's teaching? You know, to the to good questions from my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I think, I think especially members of UBC, we just need to be asking ourselves, do we see within us, do we see a new humanity? And is this new humanity in here, is it a model of this new community that Christ is building through his spirit? Because if we're not careful, it is so easy to, to build walls of partitions within our own community in which Jesus is said to have destroyed that partition. And yet we go back and we erect those partitions again. And to perpetuate such partitions in the church, to even tolerate such partitions in the church, in whatever form, realize that sets us against the reconciling work of God. 
It sets us against it. In fact, to say that Christ has abolished such barriers in his death, and yet to turn around then and erect those barriers again, that makes us enemies of God's reconciling work. Friends, the world, it's not a peaceful place. You know, we've just left a century in which there was, there was more death and destruction than any century in human history. And yet, we all still hold out hope. There's something in us that wants to believe peace is attainable. It is possible. And Paul's saying, it is possible. It can be obtained. True and everlasting peace. But he's saying it's not going to be found in quieting your own soul. It's not going to be found out in drowning out the voices of this world and then listening to the inner voice of your own heart. That's not where true peace is found. It's not found inside of us. It's not found inside of our family structures, finally, or our political structures. It's not found in any national or international identity. He's saying peace can be found outside of us, in Christ, by the one who has fully assuaged the wrath of God on our behalf. That is the only place peace can be found. And if we have peace with that God, then that kind of reconciling peace brings about reconciliation and peace in here. And we have that unity with one another. And we live out that new creation identity right here, the expression of Christ's reign on earth in the local church. And friends, that's what the world, when they look at us, that's what they should see. Not just Fayettevillians or you know, U of A grads or whatever it might be that unites us. They should see something distinct, a new humanity built around Christ in the spirit, no longer of the flesh, verse 11, but in the spirit, verse 22. And they should see such true and everlasting peace. But friends, do they see that? Will they see that? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way in which your word comes to us. And it both tears us down and it builds us up. It does both at the same time. It reminds us of our plight and yet at the same time it meets us and provides for us. It challenges us and encourages us. And God, we're grateful for that word. And we pray that increasingly within our own body, we would be unified first and foremost around the gospel of Christ and that where there are barriers to such gospel unity, Lord, where we have erected them, whether it was willfully or whether it was unknowingly, God, we pray that you'd expose that to us. Reveal it to us. Convict us where there is sin. Reveal us where we reveal such things where we're blind. And God, we pray that increasingly we would look like that new humanity that commends the gospel in Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.